Welcome to Flip the Script, your go-to podcast about health disparities. My name is Max. My guest today is Dr. Kemi Dahl. She is an assistant professor in obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Washington. I'll let her tell us a little bit more about herself. Hi, Max. Thank you for having me. Um, so as you said, I'm a junior faculty at the University of Washington, and I'm a gynecologic oncologist, uh, clinical training, and I'm also a health equity and health services researcher, which I'm sure we'll be talking more about. Um, I am originally from Atlanta, and that's where I grew up and have Where's up? <laughs> right, ATL, uh, migrated <laughs> um, various areas across the country during training. Um, which I'm grateful for each one. Um, but now I'm out in the Pacific Northwest and excited to speak with you. Well, thanks for joining me. I'm curious what led you to researching matters of health equity in Gainanc? Mm. Um, it was really interesting. For me, it was definitely a circuitous journey. Um, so when I was in residency is when I realized I wanted to be a GYN oncologist. And um, I started doing research in GYN oncology that was mostly agnostic to disparities. And at the same time, I was um, doing some or attempting to lead some diversity and equity work in my residency program at my institution. And that is a story for another day. But I will say it was a profoundly uh, traumatic experience for me. And so I actually left residency kind of burned out on racial equity and diversity and really focused on just getting the best training I could get in G1 oncology and kind of like, don't come anywhere near me with words of racism, disparities, equity, because it was just, it had just been such a terrible experience. So at the same time that was happening, I was having a clinical experience between two different hospitals in Chicago that just made it so glaringly obvious um, how disparate the care outcomes were, especially for black women with GYN cancers. So when I got to my fellowship, I had chosen it specifically because I wanted to pursue health services research. Um, that is also a story for another day, but I ended up um, being able to get a master's degree and do a research postdoc there. And it was during that time when I had time away from the clinical enterprise and I was focusing on classes and reading and learning that the light bulb turned back on for me for how to use these new skills I was learning um, to think about racial equity issues in Gynonk. And the real tipping point, I would say, was working on, I was working on insurance disparities. Um, it's kind of like my way to tiptoe back in, if I think about it kind of in hindsight. And um, I had this, we had, you know, it was a statewide analysis looking at Medicare and Medicaid and privately insured women with all different kinds of GYN cancers. And I had these beautiful graphs demonstrating the difference between um, the women on Medicare versus Medicaid and private insurance. And I'll just never forget when I stratified it by race and the black women with private insurance who had uterine cancer were doing worse than the white women on Medicaid. Mm -hmm. And it just was this moment where it's like, you can't unsee it. Um, and it stuck with me and it ended up being just a paragraph in that paper, but it was really the beginning of wanting to delve more and more into why that was the case. Um, and then that just led into everything that's happened since. Wow. I feel like a lot of health services researchers that focus on health disparities kind of had that moment. Um, so. 
what is the current landscape of disparities, I guess, in especially racial disparities in endometrial or uterine cancer um, when, you know, at, I guess at different stages, like pre-diagnosis, treatment, and then afterwards? Yeah, um, so overall endometrial cancer has a fairly decent statistics, I'll say, if you get to say that about a cancer. So it has an over 80% five-year survival and um, around 75% of women are diagnosed at early stages and many, many women are cured just with surgery. Um, but for black women or African-American women with endometrial cancer, those statistics just don't apply at all. So uh, the black women have a 90% higher five-year mortality risk from endometrial cancer after that diagnosis. Uh, 30 to 50% of black women will have aggressive types of disease, depending on how you define that, but it's at least threefold, up to fivefold more. And only a little bit better than half are actually diagnosed at early stages. So it's a completely different disease in terms of thinking about risk and thinking about outcomes when you're talking about black women with endometrial cancer. Every, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Every, it'll come back to me. Anyway, every impression of endometrial cancer as being something fairly um, favorable goes out the window. And so to answer your question more succinctly, um, you know, the incidence rates among black women and white women for endometrial cancer are very similar. So um, it's right around the same whether, you know, when you adjust for hysterectomy, the incidence rate goes up among black women because of the higher rate of hysterectomy. But overall, it's around one in 37 to one in 39 women. So the burden of disease is the same. It's the outcomes that are different. So black women are systematically diagnosed at later stages. And that is independent of the, that difference in histology type that I mentioned. So even when you account for having more aggressive types, a black woman with a more aggressive type is going to be diagnosed at later stages than white women or has a higher risk of that. Um, black women have consistently documented lower rates of surgery, which is a big part of uh, endometrial cancer treatment and survival. And the treatment data is interesting because depending on where you look, you can see, find a study that says black women aren't treated in terms of uh, chemotherapy and radiation to the same extent. And you can find some studies that suggest that they are. But underneath, those are generally studies that are asking a yes, no question. And there's less work looking at the quality of that chemotherapy or the quality of that radiation therapy. So through treatment, we see disparities. And then of course we just see disparities therefore in survival and in rate of recurrence and um, you know, ultimately mortality. So that is the state right now of endometrial cancer. Endometrial cancer has one of the largest black white mortality gaps of any cancer in the US. It is a larger gap than that in breast cancer. It's larger than what we see in colon cancer. It's larger than pancreatic cancer. Like it's larger than cervical cancer. All these cancers that people are generally tend to think about like, oh yeah, I know about the disparity in this. I always start a lot of my talks this way. So people understand that this gap, this 90% higher mortality, it's one of the worst statistics we have in all of cancer. And endometrial cancer is four times more common than cervical cancer. It's the number one most common gynecologic cancer in the US. I mean, one in 37 women is not that uncommon. So you can hear my passion in my voice, but it's like once you open the door here, I just think there's so much to learn and then of course to do on behalf of black women with endometrial cancer. Mm -hmm. mm. So, uh, you know, something that struck me is the fact that it is often 
diagnosed at a later stage among Black women. Um, and it sounds like regardless of whether someone has Medicaid versus um, uh, employer-based insurance, um, and, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm still a fourth-year med student, but something that I hear from, like, the Black women in my life or, um, or even from just, like, kind of observing um, discussions online, too, is that a lot of times, like, symptoms can be dismissed, uh, especially, say, like, you know, we already talked about Black women having um, higher incidence of fibroids and some of the symptoms that are associated with having fibroids may be actual symptoms of uh, uterine cancer. And I'm wondering whether there's kind of a, is there any association, I guess, with the experience of symptoms being dismissed of like heavy, you know, heavy periods? Um, uh, as like, oh, you just have fibroids, it's okay, it's normal, it's like more prevalent among black women. Um, and that, is there like an, an arch that sort of like ties that to the fact that black women and uh, are diagnosed at way later stages with endometrial cancer? So a lot of that work is ongoing. So if, if the question is, do we have like a longitudinal population cohort study where we've been able to follow women and demonstrate that they're having symptoms and they're not getting diagnosed, so then eventually they're getting diagnosed later. No, a lot of that requires a universal healthcare system with high quality records. However, these are the things we do know. We know that black, we know that black women do have much markedly higher rate of fibroids in the premenopausal years. We know that during reproductive years, black women have more, are like, more likely to have irregular cycles. And we know from the brilliant work of Dr. Erica Marsh that Black women do have normalization of heavier bleeding cycles, of irregular cycles, of larger size fibroids. And even within that work, we're starting to understand from the reproductive justice movement, the commonality of Black women experiencing discrimination, racism, or other negative experiences, specifically when they're seeking reproductive-oriented care. So we have an understanding that Black women in the United States seeking reproductive, and in, when I use that term, I mean really the full spectrum of reproductive, gynecologic reproductive care, are doing so in many times under duress. We also know, on the other side, we know that from the study, one of the studies that I did, is that when you just look at insurance claim data, so if you just look at Cancer, cancer registry data linked with insurance claim data. Black women, all these women have insurance because they have claims that we can find, are not, don't receive ultrasounds, biopsies. They don't receive, they don't get their bleeding symptoms documented to the same extent as their white counterparts. So we know that that's going on in the diagnostic space as well. And then from some qualitative work that we did that was recently published, when you talk to women and ask them, we hear stories of women saying, well, I did say that I was having some bleeding and that I had some spotting from time to time. And what I heard was that can happen sometimes, I'm using quotes since y'all can't see me. Or I heard that, hmm, let's go get an ultrasound to check that out. Now, that doesn't actually communicate risk. And I, I speak to this in the same way that I would say, you know, what would you say if your sister or your mom or your girlfriend or your daughter said, I have, I'm feeling a lump in my breast. Everybody knows immediately, you need to go get a mammogram or an ultrasound, a bio, like I don't know what it is, but you need to go get it checked out. 
I'm not saying you have cancer, but we're all, we're all on the same page that cancer is a possibility and therefore there's urgency here. When you talk to women and you ask them, well, what happened around the time that you are having bleeding, this abnormal bleeding, bleeding at 62, at the age of 70, and they're describing inner encounters that have no communication of risk, no communication of urgency, I think we start to see the pieces of the puzzle working its way together. And so what I would say right now is that I think we have a lot of different touch points to start to understand how it is that black women could have this unique experience of late diagnosis of endometrial cancer that doesn't have to do with insurance and doesn't have to do with healthcare access, or I should say not completely. I don't want to take that totally out because obviously that's an issue. Um, and I am very interested in continuing that work, as you said, to develop all of the links along the way. And so we can really almost surgically with precision intervene on the levers that are going to be most powerful so women stop dying of this disease right um yeah that's i mean it's really troubling right i mean as a fourth year med student when i hear someone is having abnormal bleeding at 70 that's like the light bulb goes up um so yikes is all i've got right now um so i know part of your work um is that you've co-founded this network that um, is meant to be like a support network for Black women who are diagnosed with um, endometrial cancer. Um, and please forgive me if I pronounce it wrong. Is it it's pronounced Ikana Network? Network. Ikana, okay, you have it. Yep. Ikana. Why don't you tell me about that? Mm -hmm. Yes. So Ikana, which is the Endometrial Cancer Action Network for African Americans, it came straight out of my work and my orientation in something called the public health critical race praxis, which you're probably familiar with. Um, and I found that I'm, so, I'm still so deeply greatly to, grateful to have found that in grad school during my postdoc fellowship because it really oriented all of my work going forward. And one of the tenets of the public health critical, critical race praxis is real community engagement and voice. And I started realizing as I was writing grants, everybody's on the same hustle, right? Writing the young investigator, writing the CDA grant. I'm starting to realize, you know, I, to meaningfully engage black women with endometrial cancer, we need to have a community of black women with endometrial cancer with which to engage. And when I looked around, I didn't see that visible community there. And so Ikana was started with one of, um, with a black woman with endometrial cancer survivor and um, named Margie Willis. And Bridget Hempstead, who is a longtime breast cancer uh, community organizer, advocate, research partner, amazing woman. And we all sat down and said, you know, we have to, we, we need an organization for black women around endometrial cancer. And through a series of grants, we founded Ikana. And it's really multi-stakeholder on purpose. So it's black women with endometrial cancer, it's clinicians, it's researchers. And our three foci are community building, um, education, both for the community and for providers and research partnership. And so we have a number of activities that fall under those three, you know, major foci. I see. And so what, I guess, once you've created the, this community, especially for the women with uh, endometrial cancer, I guess, what do they report in terms of, I, I, I'm, I'm assuming you're studying the impact of the network on, um, on, their, exper <laughs> on their experiences. 
Yeah, it's, um, well, I guess this is what we're studying. We're studying a lot of things. So um, I, I should start with, you know, part of being very accountable to, to these women, because um, I feel an affinity, right? But I'm also not a black woman with endometrial cancer, is to listen to what their needs were. And the very, at the, from the very beginning, the need was community, just to be belonging to a group. So we're not out here alone. Most women who were diagnosed said they had, the very first time they had ever heard the words endometrial cancer was when they were diagnosed. So we first built community. And that's why our social media, our website are just very deliberately inviting spaces to bring women in. And we had a couple of in-person conferences where we flew women in from around the country to meet and just to start to create that community. Now, out of that, the next thing came the education piece, which is that we want to be having these conversations about abnormal bleeding, endometrial cancer, our experience. We want to be having that with other women. We want to open up and stop the silencing around all of this menopausal transition and everything. So we, we basically adapted an evidence-based education um, toolkit called Community Empowerment Partners. And so that became our first initiative, was a na this national peer education campaign happening in women's homes, at churches, libraries. And it was both service for the community, so we could start these conversations, but also research. So yes, we've been studying um, the adaptation and the efficacy of that, working on the paper right now. Um, so we're doing that. And then um, we also have trained some of our steering group members to be research advisors to be patient partners in research. So for the first time, there is a black woman on the energy uterine cancer committee that, that dictates clinical trials for the GOG, um, what, what was formerly the GOG, National Endometrial Cancer Trials. And so to have a black woman with endometrial cancer on that committee, listening to how they're putting the studies together, I mean, that's the kind of, um, that's the kind of impact we want to have in the research space in general. And then for ourselves, we just submitted um, our first large-scale comparative effectiveness grant. Um, and that, that, that entire project is designed to combat the social isolation that Black women feel uh, who are diagnosed with endometrial cancer specifically targeted at supporting them through treatment. Because um, what I hear from the women is that there is a, there's a huge unmet need for the kind of social support during treatment that actually allows women to complete this life-saving treatment. We know they're more likely to need it. They're more likely to have aggressive disease. They're more likely to be diagnosed late. We know they're more likely to need long, you know, um, complicated chemotherapy regimens, radiation and all this, but there's no structure in place to support them. So that was our most recent um, grant submission. So fingers crossed for that. So I really, I mean, I love Ikana so much, obviously, but it is, it's, everything is interconnected. You know, yes, we build community and the community creates education and awareness and we study the community and we study the awareness and we think about new research. And then, you know, we're, we collaborate with other researchers who've been in the space. So it, um, the whole idea is, of it is that it's all quite authentic and integrated, but it really starts with the needs of black women with endometrial cancer. That's, that's the beginning and the end, you know, and that's, and we, we stay with integrity in that so that we make sure that anything that we're doing is ultimately serving these women. I love it. Um, so the fact that, or the fact that black women are diagnosed and with and experiencing more aggressive forms of endometrial cancer, um, it's sort of like mi mirrored in evidence in other cancers, like um, some breast cancers. Um, and I'm curious, whether um, 
I guess, what are some of the causes behind the more aggressive forms of um, endometrial cancer? And I should say that I also, I've also read that about cervical cancer. Um, one is, my question for you here is like, sort of like, what are the different whys here? Uh, and I'm trying to get a sense at whether racism, right, is, or, or just the experience of living here in the United States has anything to do with it, like we've seen in like preterm birth when comparing um, black women, immigrants, and then their daughters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's just one of the most incredible studies I think that was ever conceived, by the way, that um, the birth, birth cohort study. So um, <laughs> it's so interesting to me, this, I, this question is so interesting because ultimately, you know, in, in, in medicine, we love this idea of like, you know, eventually we can get to some gold standard, you know, we just eventually we'll get to some randomized controlled trial that will answer this question. And I always come back and it's like, you know, you can't randomize black women and not experience racism and sexism in the United States. It's ubiquitous. <laughs> right? It's ubiquitous. So, which is, which is why I think it's, that's how my, my lens is informed uh, when I think about what research is out there. So there's a, you know, in endometrial cancer, there's ongoing amazing research looking at molecular subtyping and really pulling apart this idea that we have only type one and type two, but getting deeper into various molecular subtypes. Now, a lot of that does overlap with our classical, um, classical definitions, but some things are divergent. So there's, I would say that there's more precision happening with uh, different levels of aggressiveness beyond histology and looking molecularly. Now we also know that surprising no one, black women are still more likely to have these more aggressive molecular types. So you're, you can throw a rock any, in any direction and find work trying to um, support the hypothesis that that is because black women are dis biologically distinct or genetically distinct or ancestrally distinct. And that's where it's all coming from. And I just want to acknowledge that, you know, it's a scientific hypothesis. If it hasn't actually resulted in any less women dying. And so I'm very interested in other hypotheses that have intervenable causes. And so, so on the one hand, what I constantly think of is one, there's actually this idea that we can separate out racism and biology is um, a fallacy because we're, we're embodied individuals living in an environmental space. We, I think we all understand this um, kind of on an instinctual level, but we have, the re we have the research that demonstrates the same thing, right? We know weathering is an issue. We know allostatic load. We know that there are physical effects, physiologic effects of racism. And at this point, we understand that there are multi-generational effects of trauma. So when speak thinking about Black women and endometrial cancer, I'm deeply interested in the same question you have which is that how does the experience of ongoing racism in the experience of multi-generational trauma influence this difference in prevalence of high-grade histology types and aggressive types? That question has not been answered. I'm keen to. <laughs> so that's where that is right now. Got it. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I like the point that you make about whether a, you know, a scientific hypothesis ultimately ends up having like a, even if it's proven or not, whether like the inquiry ends up having some kind of mortality benefit. Uh, and, and I guess sometimes like if the, if the question itself doesn't like change like outcomes, then like, it's like, uh, uh, <laughs> 
Yeah, it's interesting. You know, it's a tricky game. Knowledge is, so I, what I would say is that I do believe in knowledge for the sake of knowledge. However, the other thing that we learn about cancer, right, is that epigenetic change seem, is, is a huge driver of mm -hmm. cancer outcomes and even differences in histology type and all of that. And epigenetics is the, is literally by definition, the interaction of the environment with our genetics. Right. So um, I, I also think of it as almost like a vulnerability thing. Like, you know, there, there, that our baseline genetics might be introducing a certain level of vulnerability, again, antecedently potentially driven by multi-generational trauma. And then you mix environment into the mix and you just, you know, you light the match in terms of this, um, this, you know, micro environment that for whatever reason, right, because of those reasons is so susceptible to aggressive forms of a certain disease. And I mean, I'm not the first person to think about this. Like I, you can hear the influences in how I talk, the eco-social theory of disease distribution by Nancy Krieger, like that. One, you know, I read that, I read those papers and it just made so much sense to me. And so that's mm -hmm. the lens I put on it. If anytime anybody says something, oh, we found this biological difference, I'm always interested. I'm like, oh, I wonder what was env environmentally distinct about those people. Because right. we're people who live in environments, not in petri, petri dishes. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason why it's interesting to me is going back to what I said before, is because if you can show me the environmental difference, then I'm interested in environmental change. Right, exactly. That's, that's where the, the gusto is. Um, another yeah. question. But can I just say one more thing? Yes, Max? yes, totally. But, but the thing is, even if today, like even if it's 50 years before we figure that out or five days, the bottom line is even within the aggressive histology types that both black women and white women get, black women are still dying more. Right. Even within those aggressive histology types that black women and white women get, black women are still being diagnosed later. So the other piece of that that I can't not leave uncommented is that that overemphasis on mm -hmm. maybe we can find the one gene, maybe we can find the one ancestral link, you know, even though we all came from Lucy. So like, I don't know why we're doing this, but even, you know, we're so focused on that, that we're leaving all of the potential to at least have equitable care with where we are on the table. So. Right. So that where, that's where I was going, right? So we have, we have currently modifiable factors, right? That we can address like in terms of clinical care, um, so if you had a wish list of things that you want to see change tomorrow about um, care for endometrial cancer um, to, you know, to push the needle on closing this gap, what would your wish list include? Great question. First of all, I have to tell you that pre-2016, you, you, you were not going to be, you, you could not find a paper talking about modifiable factors of endometrial cancer disparity. So we should, we should acknowledge how new the idea that we're going to focus on modifiable factors is. Mm -hmm. um, however, my wish list. Whew, okay, <laughs> so my wish, my wish list all results in the same thing, which is that a black woman with the same characteristics as a white woman has the exact same opportunity to be diagnosed at early stage, to be have comprehensive, high quality surgery, to get the appropriate type of adjuvant treatment if she needs it, to get the appropriate type of survivorship support if she needs it, and to have the least likely chance of recurrence, just like everybody else. What that means, well, one, I'm a researcher, so I'm going to say it means more research. It's like, it means exactly what you're saying, creating bigger infrastructures so we can actually understand what's going on in terms of women's care. It means universal access to healthcare so that women, regardless of what age they are, regardless of whether they're on the Medicare age or spectrum or not, can get access to care. It means provider retraining so that I don't have to give talks 
to non-OBGYNs who tell me this is the first time they've had a talk about endometrial cancer, and then this is the first time that they have ever heard that there's a disparity at all. We need provider education. I'm also very interested in how our guideline, how are our guidelines for evaluating abnormal bleeding, for mm -hmm. ultimately diagnosing endometrial cancer, who are they optimized for? Are we sure they're serving the group most at risk, i.e. black women? Mm -hmm. I'm not so sure about that. Research ongoing. So I'm interested in potential guideline change. I mean, you told me the witch list, so I'll just keep going. Oh yeah, I please. <laughs> I, I want every black woman who is concerned about her bleeding to have somebody that's, that will listen to her and that will do risk appropriate workup for that, whether she has endometrial cancer or not. I want that, I want, I deeply want for black women not to have an identity that we suffer around the very reproductive organs that for many of us, not all, are part of our definition of womanhood. It's, it's um, that's like the deep wound, you know, that part of my work is really serving, right? Is that we need to move away from this idea that we have accepted a lower quality of care. We accept we bleed more. We accept we have fibroids. We accept all these things as just normal. And when I say we, I mean like medical establishment, biomedical world, this is just how black women are. I don't mean that black women are happily suffering. Um, what else do I want? I want support systems in place for any black woman who does get diagnosed. So she's not alone, she's not isolated. And I want for every one of those interactions with a nurse, with a front desk person, with the oncologist, with the radiation oncologist, to be one that is respectful, that is patient, and that ultimately leads to that woman having the best chance of survival. Because I have yet to meet a single black woman with endometrial cancer who doesn't wanna live. I have yet. And so anytime I hear, I see research or studies, well, patients refusing treatment, patients said it, I'm always like, that is, you're at the surface level because you know what everybody wants? Everybody wants to live. And it's our, I feel like it's really, I guess I would say it's part of my purpose is to unlock all of that. And, and change the variables and figure out the data and figure out where we can intervene and reframe things and switch the guidelines and all of that so that every woman who has that deep desire to live gets the best chance to do so. Absolutely. I feel like that was kind of rambly, but there you go. No, that was like, that was a fantastic <laughs> wish list. Come on, I got to <laughs> Also, I would like chocolate chip cookies every day. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, so one thing I thought of while we're talking about this, uh, especially because you brought up Dr. Erica Marsh's, Marsh's work, um, is how, you know, like OBGYN is kind of, you know, care can be a little segmented. You know, you have REI over there, uh, MIGS, MFM, General OB, Gynonc. Uh, and so I guess for some women seeking um, reproductive care, when, for instance, I don't know, they have fibroids, uh, means that they're, they're going to the REI or, um, or seeing a general OB. And I wonder uh, whether you think that the way in which, I guess, gyne care can be uh, fragmented um, can potentially contribute to, um, I guess, people kind of getting lost um, in, uh, what's, a, what's a word I'm looking for here? Or falling through the cracks, right? Where, yeah, falling through the where, cracks, like, People yeah. don't get to an oncologist I guess like on time because yep. of a almost kind of a lack of integration across the difference of specialties. I, I'm oh my gosh, absolutely. So I mean, actually, this was one of my earliest studies was looking at how women got from biopsy to surgery to chemo in endometrial mm -hmm. cancer because it's like there's just that you're dealing with like 
your biopsy maybe in your PCP's office, then maybe you're getting an ultrasound or radiology. I mean, there's just so many things. So, I mean, I, I have to, I mean, I think when you go back, it, it, it does go back to our fractured healthcare system that is structured the way it is for profit, right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, part of the, we have to acknowledge that the cancer care structure, and I would argue the larger healthcare structure, isn't actually structured for EO. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not, it's not structured for continuity. Mm-hmm. So on that level, yes, I think we could do a lot more integrated care. And I think, you know, when I, when I think about the way that gyne care is fractured, I honestly, it, it takes me back to what the reproductive justice warriors, as I call them out there, are doing in terms of completely radically rethinking prenatal care, you know, and, and the concept of doulas and how doulas are, you know, doulas are so much more than in hospital labor support. Um, it's so much more about continuity of care, right? And, and, mm-hmm. and empowerment of the patient's voice. And I, I offer that, I think, I don't think we're, I think we're at the like literal like tip of what an, the idea of the doula structure could do for healthcare in general. Mm-hmm. And so I think about that when I think about gyne care, I think about, wow, could there be something about some, some kind of role where women are really shepherded through these changes during their reproductive time period where mm-hmm. there's continuity there and where, you know, the specialists right now are kind of pathology oriented, not necessarily health supporting oriented. I mean, I say that as a cancer doctor, like I fix a problem, right? I'm not a cancer prevention doctor. So this is like a larger, maybe woo woo answer to your question. But I think ultimately that fractured care is a problem. Here's how to bring it back really tangibly. When I did this, when we, did this study, this qualitative study for black women with endometrial cancer. There's not a single, there was not a single question in our interview guide about fibroids, about childbirth, uh, about when people started having periods, nothing. Almost every, like women could not answer the questions that I had about their menopause, about getting diagnosed with endometrial cancer without telling me about their fibroids, without telling me about their mother's hysterectomy, without telling me about the first time they started bleeding and what happened, the first time they went to the ER and they had heavy bleeding and what happened to them when they were 19 and got looked at as like, there's something wrong with you. About the first time that a doctor didn't understand the concept of telling a parent that your child needs to go on birth control without being able to explain, it has nothing to do with sexual activity, it has to do with her irregular cycles. Women told us about losing their children in childbirth, stillbirths. So what that really demonstrates to, should demonstrate to all of us is that we are not fractured in our experiences of our reproductive lives whether it's childbirth or fibroids or birth control or whatever, it's one continuum. And what's happened, I think, because of this fracturing is that you have a whole world of gynecologic cancer and gynecologic cancer disparities that has never interacted with the world of benign gynecologic disease disparity, right? It's like, how is it possible? Like, I mean, now, yes, it's easy for me to say this, but I remember sitting there going, wait, if black women, if, if communities of black women have four times the hysterectomy rate than other communities, don't you think that might end up with a bit of a knowledge gap around a natural transition to menopause? And wouldn't that then inform, and couldn't that then inform what happens to you when you actually are the one woman in your family who still has her uterus and isn't necessarily clear on what that looks like going forward? So these are the kinds of connections that we can start making when when we, as you suggested, like, you know, 
like take a deliberate step back and say, as a patient, this is one experience. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't matter what like my letters say behind my name. Oh my God. Just galaxy brain. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was great. Thank you for that answer. Um, I have one more question, um, which is not specific to um, endometrial cancer and more so because you are a gynecologic oncologist. I'm curious mm-hmm. whether you have plans of sort of like, I don't know, expanding Econa network or like having a much like an even larger network that also takes in, like takes in um, like ovarian cancer and cervical cancer because like, ovarian cancer is so deadly, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. How do I want to answer this question? Well, first I would say that uh, aggressive endometrial cancer actually has a higher mortality than ovarian cancer. Oh, however, we're not out here competing. What I'll say is that the most important thing with me, and I would, I think I can speak for the other leadership members of Ikana mm-hmm. is authenticity and integrity to, to the community. And I really do hold with the adage, you know, you can go fast alone, but you'll go farther together. Mm-hmm. And so I think that in the sense of us building and growing and potentially expanding out, that would be, that would also have to be an authentic process where we're bringing as much value, right? Mm -hmm. As we would be receiving. We have so, I mean, we just got here. (laughs) So we have so much to do, but I think what's more, I mean, I think what, what is happening beyond the, you know, the one, you know, the, the meeting, you know, the, the leadership meeting of Ikana or the one event we did here, or even the study, fingers crossed, God willing, it gets funded. Even all that is the example. Mm-hmm. It's demonstrating the power of what happens when you stop studying people, when you, when you stop spending 30 years studying black women with endometrial cancer from the claim, from just looking at claims or like, checking EMR and you actually start talking to them mm-hmm. and, and inviting them into the process, you see the power of what that's able to create. And I think what I want right now for Econa in terms of scope is I want us to be that example for anywhere else where the voice, where patients' voices are long overdue to not just be heard, because that's not it, it, it's to be centered and mm-hmm. then lifted up and empowered so that for in the structures that we inhabit, there are equal voices. That's what I mean by lifting up. They're not like down on like in anything, but just in terms of our structures right now, mm-hmm. it does take a lot of us who are inside the structures to deliberately say, no, this voice is equal to mine. We have a decision to make and we're gonna make it together. I mean, I think in that way, we, ha- we have such impact beyond even GYN cancers, right? Mm-hmm. Out to whatever other cancers, out to whatever disease. Um, and I really, I just have to honor the reproductive justice movement as being, a, as being just a clear um, beacon and clear example of the power of that. I mean, we are talking about maternal mortality right now because of the reproductive justice movement. Because Absolutely. Of- Black women who had, you know, who this, who've had these experiences and said, you will now listen to me. I mean, it's just, anyway, I don't want to go off on that, but it is truly (laughs) incredibly compelling. And I am so encouraged by that every day. And even now, as I see like art news articles on endometrial cancer and like in black news outlets, and I'm like, oh my gosh, it's all here, right? It's all Mm -hmm. here just kind of waiting for those of us who, who do have some institutional power, I'll just say it, 
to be able to leverage that in a way that's meaningful. All right. I feel like I'm just, you know, on a soapbox. Well, no, that was great. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been a pleasure um, having you as a guest of the pod. And I look forward to seeing where the Econa Network goes and also where your research goes. Thank you so much. Wonderful to speak with you, Max. You may follow the pod on Twitter at FlipscriptPod, F-L-I-P-S-C-R-I-P-T-P-O-D, myself at MaxJordan underscore N, M-A-X, J-O-R-D-A-N underscore N as in Nancy and Dr. Kemidol at K-E-M-I-D-O-L-L. Listen to the podcast on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts and please feel free to leave us any reviews. Thank you.